The following program is being brought to you on the Grain Talk Network. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit thegreentalknetwork.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues, Ocean River Shields of Achilles, with your host, Dr. Rob Moyer. Find out what others are doing and what you can do to create a greener and blue planet Earth. Now, here's Dr. Rob Moyer. Hello. We're talking today about sturgeon of the China Sea and sturgeon in the Danube River and in an estuary near you with Dr. Boyd Kennard who is the uh, founder of the, uh, of the Conte Andronomous Fish Research Center, which is a uh, research laboratory for migratory fish on the Connecticut River. Uh, he's also done, uh, and he was with us last, last episode, talking about the sturgeons in um, the Connecticut River and the Merrimack River and uh, I think that was about it. He also told us about lampreys in the Fort River. Uh, but he's back today. Well, actually, we're having some difficulty getting connected. So, fortunately, my colleague Mike Dunmire from Ocean Champions is on the line. Hello, Mike. Rob. Hi. <laughs> so, you're going to stand in for, for Boyd as our sturgeon man. And I understand that you were fortunate to actually uh, see some sturgeon farming or rodeo sturgeon or something. Yeah, in, in, indeed. Um, I, uh, I recently joined the, the board of directors of the National Aquarium Conservation Center, uh, which is uh, really looking to uh, make conservation prominent, uh, a prominent role for the aquarium, and uh, they're doing some work on dolphins and, and uh, some other areas. But uh, we were, were partnering with that group with Moat Marine Labs. We were down in Sarasota, Florida, meeting with them on some things, and uh, as a part of that, we got to tour one of their projects, which is a sustainable aquaculture uh, closed system uh, sturgeon farm. Uh, and it was really kind of phenomenal to see how uh, how, how they've got this done. But uh, you know, from from the tiny little larva uh, to, uh, to you know, couple inch size sturgeon all the way up to uh, you know some substantial, probably three four foot uh, sturgeons and tanks that they had going there, and it's. It's working pretty well. Apparently, it's a, it's a fish that can be successfully farmed in a closed system. That's very exciting. Often, these aquaculture places just try to grow the fish big enough to fit on the dinner plate. But these sturgeon, I guess, are a little bigger than that. Yeah, they uh, they they take them up to about uh, this is about two years old. The the intent uh, really for this is is the caviar um, rather than the fish. Um, uh, uh, and, you know, whereas, you know, sturgeon in the wild can certainly live for, you know, hundreds of years or so. Uh, so they're not getting, they're not getting that kind of robust life, but it's certainly, you know, it's a way to meet a demand. And, and of course, when they, when they harvest the, uh, caviar, they're also, uh, harvesting the, the, 
the meat as well. Um, but, uh, you know, possibility for a you know, way to feed some people without having negative impacts on the environment. Yeah, I've had sturgeon meat. It's a nice white fish, I think. Yeah, they were the uh, the gentleman who's uh, 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 runs the Moat Marine Lab was was really kind of looking for opportunities to to get us to try it. Unfortunately, it didn't work out, but he was really championing, uh, saying it really is a, a very tasty fish. That's um, fascinating. And of course, the whole trick is to have it be separate from the ocean, so that what's being fed and the excrement from the fish is all being managed. Exactly. So this is in, in many ways no different than, you know, your community pool, to, to use a really bad, simple example. But, uh, <laughs> you know, all, all the water is, is, is heavily filtered and, and, and comes back into the system. There are some uh, 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 trace amounts that need to be drawn off at times, and they use those for uh, uh, fertilizing nearby fields, kind of a, a, a land-based method of using that. Sure. Uh, um, it was it was very interesting and, and uh, something that uh, that they're you know, not at uh, at uh, a massive scale yet, but it was an impressive operation. Um, you know the the other thing, Rob, we and, and when you and I yeah, chatted about some of the things that Ocean Champions uh, could talk to you about, we didn't mention um, David Wilmot, who's the uh, original co-founder of Ocean Champions. Last night was invited to be a VIP. Uh, attendee at the Barbara Boxer fundraiser um, that was attended by President Obama, and uh, David got to meet Obama face to face and and uh, hear some pretty encouraging words. Um, uh, I don't know if uh, if you had seen this. You know, the no. whole oil spill is uh, is you know potentially an opportunity to uh, uh, get expanded offshore drilling out of the discussion of the climate bill and out of the administration's plans, although we haven't been given any strong signals about that yet. But uh, Obama had a quote last night that, for the first time, anything I've heard offers some hope. Um, And what he said was, um, we've been putting it off, and by it he means transitioning to clean energy. We've been putting it off for decade after decade after decade, and it's about time that we said to ourselves, that we're ready to make a change on behalf of the future of our children and our grandchildren, which, you know, to me sounds like the administration might be open to changing its position on expanded drilling and maybe making a hard push for the clean energy that's in the it's in the climate bill. So, um, you know, time will tell, but it's the first encouraging thing I've seen. Yeah, it would be good for the oceans not to be drilling oil in them. <laughs> yeah, that may qualify as the understatement of the year, I think. <laughs> Mike, thanks for the update. Uh, Dr. Kennard, are you on the phone? I am on the phone. Oh, welcome. Thank um, you. We had Mike Dunmire stand in, and he had just been visiting a, uh, a sturgeon aquaculture project down in Sarasota, Florida. Right. Where they're raising the sturgeon for the... the uh, caviar and also for the meat yeah the we, we do this they our industry uh, sturgeon culture industry started on the very early 80s on the west coast in california and so you can go to california restaurants and buy white sturgeon meat uh but it was a caviar and meat industry but it's really hasn't hasn't really grown that much in north america it's the Chinese that uh, are stepping very, very quickly into uh, into that uh, that niche. I was fortunate to have you know eat sturgeon when I was I guess in California. Yep. And I, I like the taste. It's a more interesting fish than tilapia. 
<laughs> well, it doesn't really have a traditional, to me, it doesn't really have a traditional fish taste. It's Right. It's more like a taste of, uh, well, some people say kind of like a combination of fish and chicken or something like that. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. Huh. And uh, and uh, the Chinese are, have, <laughs> I last year and the year before I toured some just huge, huge, huge sturgeon uh, culture facilities. And they're producing smoked sturgeon. Uh, they're drying it. Uh, they are making sushi out of it and selling it to the Japanese and when they can't get tuna. And it is just delicious. You just So leave it to the Chinese to produce a food product that, uh, that will be in high demand. Yes. It is good that this Sarasota project is um, a contained system. They're not yeah. mixing the sturgeon with the with the ecosystem, so that that's right. That the water is, uh, you know, not going to get any of the waste problems happening. Yeah, well, that's very different than the way the Chinese are doing it. Right. That's some of the criticisms of aquaculture is when they overfeed, you know, aquaculture fish in a wild environment. Yeah. Well, it's all about what your priorities are, isn't it? I guess. Well, our priority is a healthy ocean, and we also, but personally, I like to eat seafood, so I want to have both. Yeah, well, then you can. Oh, uh, good. <laughs> yeah, and you can, but you have to go at it from, from that point of view, making both those issues a priority, don't you? Yes, we do. Yeah, you do. So, last episode, you were telling us about the sturgeon of the Connecticut River and the Merrimack River, and about the lampreys going up and down to the Fort River. Yeah, uh, and today I'd like to learn more about fish from faraway places, like the sturgeon in the China Sea, or sturgeon in the Danube that you've been working with, or your um, and your work in the the Amazon. Um, but let's start with one of the places that has been involving sturgeon, and we'll talk some sturgeon some more, and then branch out to other fish. Okay. Um, well, I, to me, it's. Uh, an interesting facet of this of this story of well, what am I doing of working in all these different places on uh, on sturgeon and in South America, Brazil, on migratory fish and and back in 1993, I was working for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, and they have a, a very large China program uh, and uh, China conservation program, and so during a swap of uh, to send some American experts over to China to maybe show them some some techniques and discuss methodologies and collaborations maybe. Uh, I went over there in 1993 to show and demonstrate at many different laboratories um, uh, telemetry, how we are using telemetry to study big fish in big rivers and learn about their migrations and habitats. And uh, so that's a federal program. It really paid off big time because that that got me uh, exposed to the Chinese uh, and working with a couple of collaborators over there that spoke English, so I didn't have to speak Chinese, and that were interested in in learning these new techniques uh, for studying fish behavior in in rivers and in the laboratory also. And this led to uh, many, many, many studies funded mostly by the Three Gorges Corporation that built Three Gorges Dam. Many of our studies have focused on evaluating the impact of Three Gorges 
uh, on the Chinese sturgeon population in the Yangtze River. It's a uh, what we would consider a federally endangered species. They're number one protected uh, category, and uh, and it's and so this has been going on since 1993 over there, and we're now. I had just had. I still have two Chinese scientists uh, at the Conti Laboratory, and we've been working on using satellite tags, trying to develop new methods. Dr. Kennard, I have to interrupt you. We're going to take a short break, and we'll come back to learn more about the sturgeon in China with Dr. Kennard after this break. This is the Green Talk Network, helping to provide a sustainable future for us all. All together now, all together now. Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and ORI partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI actions and events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI eco-steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. For decades, we've been made aware of environmental issues, such as climate change, overpopulation, and habitat destruction. How can we stay engaged and active in helping to prevent these issues from becoming insurmountable problems for our children and beyond? Tune in to The Earth Guardian. Each week, Sherilyn Viteze will cover the issues and discuss what is being done and how you can make a difference without too much effort to improve the quality of life for everyone on Earth. Tune in Wednesdays at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Green Talk Network. Two views, different topics, questions, answers, news, and advice. You'll want to check out Ecoman and the Skeptic live from Philadelphia University. Every week, join hosts Rob Fleming and Chris Pastor as they tackle a different topic on sustainability. You'll hear all sides of the issue supported by guests who provide valuable insights. Get ready to be engaged, educated, and entertained when you tune into Ecoman and the Skeptic. Broadcast live every Wednesday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Green Talk. Network. Keep listening to the Green Talk Network for the latest in the sustainability and green movement for all of our futures today and tomorrow. The Green Talk Network. Spread the green. Let me 
You're listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-888-346-9141. Again, that's 1-888-346-9141. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. Hi, we're talking with Dr. Boyd Kennard about sturgeon, and uh, Dr. Kennard has been called the migratory fish missionary. This has been considered by some... Why do they call this missionary work, Dr. Kennard? <laughs> well, because, uh, because I'm trying to bring uh, to third world countries uh, the fruits and the knowledge of what we've learned from scientific studies of migratory fish in big rivers. And these third world countries like Romania and the Danube River and all over Brazil and in China, when I went to those places and introduced uh, telemetry, the tagging of fish with electronic transmitters so that you can track their movements, identify spawning habitats, all that kind of stuff. That was the first time anybody had actually been to those rivers and, and demonstrated a successful uh, ability to do that sort of thing. So... Uh, People then you're training the locals so they can continue the work when you're not there. Precisely. So I, I go there, I train a few people, and, and teach them what I know, and then move off to another place. And, uh, and then let them continue and train graduate students and other people. And so it's like a virus when I go to these places. That's the way I, that's the way I look at it. Uh, I'm trying to infect them with information and techniques that we use to study migratory fish in North America. And the Three Gorges Dam is a big concern. Is, um, are, are you finding, what are you finding about that and the ability for a sturgeon to coexist and so forth? Well, one of the biggest impacts of Three Gorges Dam that's an obvious impact is, uh, is it blocks the access of Chinese sturgeon uh, to their historical spawning areas, which are upstream of the present site of Three Gorges Dam. And so we did a, um, a pre- and a post-dam study. Uh, so we have data uh, on reproductive success, the location of where they would spawn below the dam. And so we're tracking those, those uh, movements of those fish and their reproductive success. And we're finding uh, just, well, it's not a surprise. Uh, this is colder water that's coming out of the Three Gorges Dam now, and so uh, fish are, we're finding less, more, more fish that are not successfully reaching uh, uh, reproductive maturity just because the water doesn't, mm. doesn't get as warm as it's supposed to. Yeah. Well, we're so used to the opposite problem of waters being too warm. That's right. Not enough oxygen, but here it, it's, it's, putting cold water in, and that's also reducing fertility, I guess. And, and this, has, this is a problem that we've, we've encountered many times in the western part of the United States, uh, those high head, our high head dams, particularly the one that goes down through the Colorado River and the Grand Canyon. That water temperature never gets, never gets warm like it used to. Ah. Yeah, it's the same thing. So will, are there sturgeon in the Colorado? No. Oh, shucks. <laughs> no, no sturgeon in the Colorado. I had to ask. Never were. 
Never were. Not, not even the very bottom there in Baja or something. No, yeah. not okay. even in the very bottom. But um, so in, in the Three Gorges Dam, uh, if sturgeon survive, they need to start reproducing below the dam. And, and they have. And yeah. that's what keeps the population going. They, they built a um, uh, year the dam was built, or actually uh, they built a practice dam that was called Gezubah that's downstream about 45 kilometers from Three Gorges. And they built that in, in preparation for the Three Gorges Dam. And so it was actually Gezubah that blocked the, initially blocked the sturgeon migration. And so they spawned below Gezubah. A uh, few do. Uh, probably most don't. But yeah. some do. And, uh, and that is this reduced reproduction is what keeps that population going. Uh, and it's being followed very closely by scientists that I work with and, and other guys, other scientists also. Now, you know, there's one thing about building, uh, you know, fishways for salmon. It must be more complicated for sturgeon to ascend those dams. And is it possible to do such kind of things at Three Gorges? Well, um, the Chinese did not... They did not build any fish passage at Gezubah, that first dam they built back uh. in the early 80s. And so that's, if you're going to build fish passage, that would have been the time to do it. Uh, they, did not, they did not do that, and they did not build any at Three Gorges. Uh, when I was in China in October, last October, I was invited for the first time by the Three Gorges administration to, uh, to present a talk to them on the successful fish passage that, um, that we're building in large rivers in Brazil for, you know, 100 species, that sort of thing. And so it would seem that, that the Chinese are, are getting on board the wagon uh, for, for, for the first time, really, to, uh, to provide fish passage for their, uh, their migratory fish. Well, it certainly helps if they're promoting it as a food and a luxury item to uh, then make way for the, the, the live sturgeon to make their ways up the rivers and stuff. Yes, yes. Um, the fish, you were telling last episode that sturgeon are very different from salmon and so that there are reasons to be more hopeful to have sturgeon return to a, a natal area then perhaps the, the more the, because of them being ocean wanderers and explorers and stuff. Yeah, ocean wanderers, explorers, and really long lives. And having a long life at a time when humans are changing your environment for the for the uh, worse is a really good is a really good character to have built into your genetic makeup, wouldn't you think? Yeah, but tell us why. Well, it's because. They they have a very long life, and so we have sturgeon, say, and for instance, in the Hudson and uh, and the Connecticut rivers that lived through that period of incredible, incredible bad pollution, bad habitat, just so so terrible. But they lived through that because these guys will live for you know, thirty years or so. And so, uh, and so each generation, all they need to do is just keep a few fish surviving, uh, each generation. And, you know, 60 years by our time, you know, we will have cleaned up the river by then. 
Yeah. And and that's kind of what's happening. And so you see populations increasing now that were depressed during this 50s, particularly the, during the 40s and 50s, 1940s and 50s. Uh, many of our populations are increasing now. Yeah, I was uh, kayaking on the Mystic River a couple weekends ago and in Massachusetts, and there was this little girl with her mother on the shore bank, and everybody that went by, she was calling out and said, have you seen the alewives? How are the alewives doing? Yeah. And, you know, alewives, unlike sturgeon, it's like a seven-year set, that whatever was born seven years ago is, and I, I was to, we were told that, well, the, the, the young that came down the river seven years ago was a small number, and so they're not expecting a lot this year than next year or something. Yeah, they go through cycles, but you have more than one time to, to reproduce and produce a new generation with alewives, just like you do with, uh, with sturgeon, because they don't die like Pacific salmon do after they, after they breed. Well, that's reassuring. Yeah. So they have, a lot of, they have a lot of flexibility in their makeup uh, and gives them ability to have different reproductive strategies over a long period. And that that applies to most of the herring fish. Well, herring, yeah, herring shad, yes, and sturgeons yeah. also. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's great. Um, so, uh, the Chinese scientists have been coming to your laboratory in in uh, in Hadley or South Am- or in Amherst, um, and and so in addition to you going over there, that uh, they're coming here and, and learning from what. Well, they came here. I have two groups here now from two different institutes in, uh, in China. One from the two people from the Yangtze River Fisheries Research Institute, which is in the middle Yangtze River. This is a group that I've worked with on telemetry of adults and spawning, characterizing spawning habitat, reproductive success, those guys. They came here to learn about uh, fish passage for, that will pass sturgeons and the diverse riverine fish which I, I do work with, as I've mentioned before, down in Brazil and here, too, in the laboratory. And so they came to learn about that. Uh, and I have another group of two uh, Chinese scientists that came from the East China Sea Research Institute in Shanghai. And uh, I'm working with them to uh, develop new tagging techniques to use these new satellite tags on the juvenile Chinese sturgeon as they leave the Yangtze River and go into the ocean, uh, where do they go? Do they turn left and go into the Yellow Sea? Do they turn right and go to the East China Sea? And, and where do mm. they go? Uh, nobody, nobody knows the answer to these questions. So, so here, here again is a U.S. cooperative kind of arrangement with the Chinese. And out of this will come information that will help them but it will also help people around the world that want to tag small sturgeons uh, with these new satellite tags because nobody does that because nobody knows how to uh, how to attach these tags to the to the fish. Mm. Yeah, the sturgeon. Well, we're going to take a break, and then uh, when we come back, we're going to talk more about sturgeon with Dr. Boyd Kennard. Keep 
listening to the Green Talk Network for the latest in the sustainability and green movement for all of our futures, today and tomorrow. The Green Talk Network. Spread the green. All together Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and ORI partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI actions and events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI eco-steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. Sustainable design is a term that has become commonplace as we strive to improve our quality of life and at the same time do our best to be good to our environment. Where can we turn for answers? Tune in each week for Savvy Structures and Sustainable Living with Dr. Lisa Whiplinger. Our program is a practical guide to living better and living in harmony with our surroundings. Topics range from architecture to water resources and community building. Savvy Structures and Sustainable Living, broadcasting live every Tuesday at 10 a.m. Eastern, 7 a.m. Pacific, on the Green Talk Network. It's football, pop culture, and everything in between. Get ready for the game plan with Anthony Heron, a.k.a. Big Ant. Anthony has a background in college and professional football and brings the player, coach, and broadcaster perspective to this weekly roundup of the top sports news and events. Big Ant wants to hear from you, too. Tune in to the game plan with Anthony Heron every Tuesday afternoon at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific time on the voice america sports channel it's game time thank you for listening to the green talk network help to spread the green by involving your family and friends you're doing your part now help them think green spread the green the green talk network listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-888-346-9141. Again, that's 1-888-346-9141. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. Hi, we're talking about an ocean wandering fish, the sturgeon, you know, with Dr. Boyd Kennard, and how this ancient fish that survives today um, is, all, is very tenacious in finding its way around. And uh, Dr. Kennard, you were uh, invited to Romania to help out with sturgeon, or, or what was that out there in Romania? Uh, yes, uh, there's a uh... In Europe, there's a, a, a huge problem with 
with sturgeon populations because they're overfished and particularly overfished by, by poachers. Uh, and so the Danube River has the largest numbers of uh, species that are were still extant. There were five species when I started work over there in the mid-'90s. And, again, it was, it was doing the same sort of work, trying to... Uh, trying to uh, give them the, the benefit of how we approach or using telemetry and other, our, our other me- methods, how we approach uh, learning something about where these guys spawn and where the young ones rear and all that kind of, of information. And during that project, it was a World Bank project, and I just bought a boat and motor and all the equipment, all the radio telemetry equipment, all the acoustic telemetry equipment, all the nets, ropes, lines, floats, everything, put it on a, uh, a container ship and shipped it to Romania from the United States because you simply couldn't buy this kind of stuff over there. Excellent. And, uh, and with that, they built a pretty good program. So through the Bosporus Straits, you had to go yes. and, and bring it into the Danube. And, yep, took uh, it to the so Danube. Is- uh, they actually offloaded Constanza. There on uh, and uh, in Romania on the Black Sea. Yes. So how are the Black Sea sturgeon doing? Well, none of them are doing well. Of continuing poaching and continuing uh, by some countries, uh, but the Danube River still does have uh, a pretty good population of beluga. And of stellet sturgeon, and there's three other species that are, are present in, in less and less abundance. But uh, the official, the legal fishery is closed. But there's still poaching that goes on. Uh, and how how far up the Danube can they travel? They can travel about 1,000 kilometers. They can travel up to uh, the first dam on the uh, Danube is uh, on the border of Serbia. And Romania, it's 1,000 kilometers upstream, and the name of the dam is Iron Gates. Appropriate. Is that, is, is that the Iron name Gate. of the dam or what? And so the beluga and many of these sturgeon species will will swim that far, and actually historically swim much farther. Sure. Yeah. But this yeah. now is a really national Romania issue because the the, the sturgeon aren't able to go to the other uh, European nations that That's right. have the Danube flowing through it. And we've submitted, uh, I've participated in several efforts to, uh, with uh, nine other countries that are on the Danube to, uh, to uh, develop fish passage for sturgeons at Iron Gates. But uh, in, in every case, it's failed to get uh, EU funding to do that. Hmm. Yes. Yeah, fortunately, they have the EU, so they don't have to do these transnational things. But uh, That's right. Still, you can't, it's, oh. Well, the EU committees, the environmental committees, have have approved uh, the the study plans that we've written up uh, for doing this, uh, but they provide no funding. Right. It's an interesting way to do business. So they they said, yeah, okay, we approve it. Now you go find the funding. Well, yeah, that's we're, consistent for the EU. Is they don't have money money because what nation wants to give money over to the mega yeah. nation there? And so, to this point, the we've we've not found any any uh, one uh, that will step up to the plate and put the money down. In our country, uh, it's very clear who who would pay for that. And the 
owner of the dam pays for that uh, in our country, the person or institution. Oh, right. Yeah, that's a, that's actually it's actually uh, taking something from the environment, like taking electricity by the control of water at the dam. They're the ones that has the responsibility to, to put up the money to pay for environmental uh, things. But that's really not clear at all over there. No. No. And you were saying how Three Gorges Dam was paying you for... Uh, yes. River research and so forth. Yep. So yep. that's and another that's, example. Yeah, and so, that's the model that we use. It's could there be hope for sturgeon in the uh, in Romania? Could there ever be hope for a fisheries to return? Oh, sure, sure. And the reason why is because that thousand kilometers of, of lower river, which has spawning habitat, rearing habitat, it's, the habitat is is basically unchanged. Uh, it's been it's undergone no industrial revolution. Uh, the Russian oh. Uh, pretty well control that, and there's been no development, so it's 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 an incredibly natural habitat. So it's just a matter of time for the fish to reproduce sufficiently to host the fisheries, and, and and to keep those fisheries closed and control the poaching. Yeah, 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 yeah. To rebuild the stocks, you got to control Let the, the poaching. Stocks rebuild. Yeah, yeah. And so one of the we've to to, to give information to this program. Uh, as a kind of a side to the kind of work that I did with with uh, teaching telemetry and all this, I also have have uh, called the missionary because I'm a missionary because I believe uh, river laboratories have a real role to play in understanding your migratory fish, and so the Romanians have have agreed with that and have, have built a river laboratory. Uh, not too far from the mouth, uh, about 100 kilometers from the mouth, uh, that will be gathering information on on the young sturgeon that are produced every year and that are headed down the river to the Black Sea. The major, uh, one of the major re, um, objectives of this new laboratory is to keep their fingers right on uh, these different species of sturgeon and see how, they, if indeed they are recovering. Absolutely. That's really excellent. We have just about five minutes left, and I, I want to have a chance to learn about your work in Brazil and the Upper Amazon, and uh, what's this flume before fishway you were talking about? Um, in the Amazon, they're beginning to develop the first hydroelectric dams on the seven major tributaries to the Upper Amazon. And I'm working in the uh, river called the Madeira River, the Wood River. And uh, the power company that's, that's, um, that's building this dam is doing something unprecedented in Brazil, and that is they're going to let science dictate uh, the kind of fish passage that they're going to put in. And so they have myself and a Brazilian engineer and a Brazilian biologist and several of us are going down and doing studying their fish in structure flow environments like a semi-natural bypass, mm. and uh, and we will then design a fishway that they will build at the dam based on our results. and And to this end, they built us a one million dollar experimental flume in which we can test fish and learn something about their swimming behavior uh, before you go and spend a great deal more money uh, to, for a fishway that may or may not work. So you really have to 
to study the individual fish to find out how fast the water can flow and how steep the climb can be, I guess. Or what are the parameters you're worried about? That's exactly right. And the configuration, the, what, what, what sort of, um, what sort of uh, uh, boulders or rocks do you put in there and what configure, how do you configure them to create uh, laminar flow and not turbulent flow that, that facilitates their upstream movement, that sort of thing. Wow. There's a lot of fish behavior, and that's what I am, a fish behaviorist, and this is just applied fish behavior. Well, it's fabulous the way you're going out and applying, applying it and then learning from it and then teaching the locals, and the locals are picking up the information and then building these river research labs. Yes, uh, Brazil is now has a fish behavior, fish passage laboratory under construction. Uh, this laboratory in Romania, uh, that's a river laboratory, fish behavior lab, uh, will be dedicated this June, and China now has appropriated money for a fish behavior migratory fish laboratory on the Yangtze River, so hopefully we'll get started on con- design and construction of that uh, the latter part of this year. That is just incredible. I think I, ha- I wish I could thank you on behalf of all the fish. I can't imagine how many how many fish you're, you're helping in, in these far-flung regions of the world. Uh, it's just phenomenal. Well, it's, it's the end of a, it's the end of, or the, I would call it the supernatant of, a, of an active research career, that you actually come up with something that is more useful than just information that you put on a, a shelf in the library, because what I'm selling is a whole is a whole approach, a different approach than than these countries, including our own, uh, usually take toward uh, studying uh, migratory fish. And the difference is that they start you start with the fish and learning their behavior before exactly. doing anything else. Exactly, and let that guide you. And let that guide you. Wise words. Uh, Dr. Kanad, I want to thank you for uh, taking all of this time to tell us about um, fascinating fish, fascinating, you know, natural history of these sturgeon and other fish that uh, are with us and we don't realize it. So thank you. It's been my pleasure, Rob. When we return, Mike Dunmeyer will be telling us about um, Ocean Champions' work. The Green Talk Network is here. Spread the green. All together now, all together now. Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and O 
ORI partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI actions and events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI Eco Steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. When planning for the future, we need to look at all the facets, environmental, humanitarian, and social. There are so many challenges that we face in keeping everything straight and environmentally sound. That's where the deliberacy, taking deliberate actions to benefit all, comes in. Join your host, author Christopher Eldridge, every weekend for a look at the missing cornerstone that is lacking in the solutions to the challenges we face every day. Listen Saturdays at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Green Talk Network. If you hear a dog barking or an angel singing, then you know that you are listening to Waking Up in America. Heard every Wednesday at 3 Pacific Time, Valerie Kirkard and all of her friends will bring you powerful and humorous discussions that raise thoughts and give you insight on how to live your life to its fullest potential. Adventure is always a must on Waking Up in America with Valerie Kirkard every Wednesday at 3 Pacific. The Green Talk Network is here. Spread the green. listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-888-346-9141. Again, that's 1-888-346-9141. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. Hi, we're back with Mike Dunmire from Ocean Champions. We're going to be talking about uh, what our, well, OceanChampions.org is Mike's site, and uh, he's been, and I have been uh, following politicians, uh, congressmen and senators, and hopefully, uh, as Mike was saying earlier in the program, how uh, David Wilmont, uh, who has a Ph.D. in oceanography from Scripps, was uh, able to talk to President Obama about, uh, I guess, the, the Gulf Coast um, disaster down in the Gulf of Mexico, and uh, I was fortunate to um, meet up with uh, Congressman Ed Markey uh, just the other day. Uh, Mike, how are you? I'm doing great, Rob. Thank you. Okay. (laughs) I'm going to take the... Usually I ask you what's new, but I'm really excited about the um, Congressman Markey's uh, Natural Resources, or the subcommittee that he's on, has... um, and today they are putting onto the floor of the whole committee. And this is the committee of, I gotta look it up so I don't just say it. Uh, the uh, Energy and Commerce Committee is, as we speak, considering a bill that will strengthen uh, the EPA's ability to test for and screen for more than 100 chemicals. As you know, you know currently, they don't test for chemicals such as endocrine disruptors that we're concerned about in our drinking water. Uh, and they need an act to do that. And, of course, the act will do more than that. It will help make water more accessible 
to uh, all communities. Uh, it'll include some jobs to give the EPA the means to, uh, to make the water cleaner. And the Ocean River Institute has been um, asking our eco-stewards to sign a letter. And 1,500 people have signed up, and a few of them, well, about 700 people, signed up just on Saturday. We were at the Earth Fest in Boston, uh, and people stopped by our booth and were signing up. So we're very excited to get this letter down to uh, Congressman Markey and Congressman Lois Capps uh, from California and Keith Ellison and Raul uh, Giovalva from Arizona and Congressman James Moran from Virginia have put together this excellent bill. Um, and I'm particularly concerned about, you know, endocrine-disrupting chemicals. Uh, and Ed Markey has, has, has a wonderful way with words, and he has described this problem with, with endocrine-disrupting chemicals in our drinking water. He says that they're like computer viruses that, over time, can severely disrupt your body's operating system, and it is vital that the EPA have a more robust and transparent program that screens drinking water contaminants to identify these chemicals that pose such concerns for us. Uh, and my opportunity to talk to, to listen to the Congressman Markey, uh, he had much to say about the Gulf of Mexico uh, oil rig disaster down there. Uh, and he's proud to have six um, scientists, PhD scientists, on his staff. And so they were able to do the science to look at the dispersants that uh, BP is spraying on the oil to make it coagulate and settle to the bottom, never mind what it's going to do to the bottom when it gets there. And his scientists found that the dispersants are laden with endocrine-disrupting chemicals that we must not let get into our water systems or into our ecosystems. Uh, and so he was able to communicate this to the EPA, and they were able to tell uh, BP not to use that chemical and instead to, here's a list of six recommended chemicals. Uh, but I, I hear from Mike that I guess we're not, they're not really doing that, right? Well, it's, it's been an interesting uh, back and forth, and, and, you know, thank goodness for Congressman Markey, who's been uh, relentless in his pressure uh, on BP on, on a number of different fronts, one of them, uh, you know, their, their use of, of specific dispersants. So uh, his staff pressed the EPA, and the EPA ultimately said, yes, you're right, um, and told BP to, to switch uh, to stop using Corexit and, and to switch to less harmful dispersants. Uh, and BP promptly, you know, responded with something that kind of amounts to, you know, go pound sand. Uh, they, they basically said, you know, we, we, we're not aware of anything that, that is as good as this, even though there's a you know, pretty prominent list displayed of, of many uh, dispersants that are viewed as more effective and also less toxic uh, uh, and kind of pushed back. And then Markey pressed his case again. The EPA kind of grew a backbone and, and pushed again, and, and hopefully it's going to happen. But it, uh, BP's really been dragging their feet. So, but uh, Markey continues to stay aggressive, so let's keep our fingers crossed. It is amazing that a congressman has better science than the EPA, and I think that's testimony to the gutting of EPA that the former administration managed to do. Uh, what's happening um, on political scenes? Uh, uh, what are some of the broader actions that your champions, that our champions in Washington, are up to? Well, I'll tell you, Rob. The, the whole Gulf disaster really emphasizes the point that elections matter, and it's never been more important to 
uh, get behind and get strong ocean advocates elected to Congress. Um, if you look, there's been a pretty strong push uh, on the oil spill and, and uh, on, on some reform actions, nearly all of which have been driven by people who Ocean Champions has endorsed and, and helped elect. Um, so on the, on the Senate side, uh, Senators Lautenberg and Nelson, who are our champions, teamed with uh, Senator Menendez to issue the uh, the bill to raise the oil spill liability cap from the puny $75 million where it exists today up to $10 billion. Uh, they got pushback from some Republicans that $10 billion was an arbitrary number, so they just changed it and made it unlimited. <laughs> yes. a, a brilliant response. Um, so they've done that. And then on the House side, uh, Ocean Champions Holt and Boyd uh, have, have introduced a similar measure. Um, you may have seen that uh, Lois Capps, who you mentioned earlier, uh, and Senator Sheldon Whitehouse uh, led the, the press uh, to get uh, President Obama to uh, establish an independent commission to investigate this bill, and that's going to happen. Uh, Congressman Pallone, who we just endorsed uh, out of New Jersey, uh, has introduced a measure that would ban any new drilling in U.S. waters. Similarly, uh, Congresswoman Pingree from Maine has introduced a bill to ban drilling off of Maine. While in the Senate, uh, Boxer, Cantwell, and a number of other uh, West Coast senators have introduced uh, legislation to ban drilling off of California, Washington, and Oregon coast. So there's, there's a lot of great activity. Now, of course, not all of these are going to get through, and what ultimately happens is, is yet to be seen. But uh, certainly, uh, you're going to see reform. And you're going to see some some things that are seriously flawed today uh, get improved. And and yeah, you know, this is again, if if these kinds of people were not elected, uh, then we would not have this activity. It's so great to see lots of action and not just relying on one or two ocean champion types. Congratulations for so many people engaged down in Washington. Uh, what's happening in the elections? Uh, I guess we had an election recently in uh, California, in Hawaii. We did, and, and uh, unfortunately, our endorsed candidate, Ed Case, uh, who was, uh, it was a really interesting special election in an open format where there was one Republican running and two Democrats, and uh, the two Democrats split the vote, uh, allowing the Republican to win the seat, which is surprising. Hawaii is a very, very blue state. Uh, the, the Republican won with 39% of the vote, so 57% voted against him, uh, and uh, Unfortunately, our gentleman, Ed Case, was the, the Democratic front-runner. Uh, because he was the front-runner, the National Democratic Committee just uh, just beat him up hard with advertisements, many of them using incorrect facts. Uh, he slipped into a very close third position. Uh, so that it definitely stings. He, he would be a phenomenal ocean champion in Congress. He actually was once before. Um, but fortunately, this was a special election. There will still be a general uh, in uh, in the fall, and uh, Mr. Case is going to be running again, so we have another chance. And again, this, this really emphasizes how you need to have support for ocean candidates. Uh, labor unions backed uh, his Democratic opponent, Colleen Hanabusa. Big business backed uh, the Republican, Charles DeJew, and it really takes a lot from the ocean community to raise the profile of ocean issues and overcome the support of some of these groups like unions and big business that don't always have the ocean as their top interest. So I, you know, I Mike, would like to issue I have the to interrupt you cry. And Thank you so much. Uh, ocean River, OceanChampions.org for more information on what Mike's talking about. Right, Thank thanks, you for Rob. listening today.
again for joining us this week on Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. Please tune in for more with Dr. Rob Moyer next Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time on the Green Talk Network. We'll talk again then. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Green Talk Network. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit thegreentalknetwork.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.